Hi, I'm David Rothkopf, the CEO of the DSR Network and host of the Deep State Radio podcast. Here at DSR, we have always believed that in a world as complex, fast-moving, and full of risks as ours, we all need access to the best minds. That is why we have created the leading network for expert podcasts on the issues of the day you care about. We go in-depth on politics, the law, national security, foreign policy, intelligence, defense, climate, and new technologies with regular and special guests that are the leading voices in their fields. We also offer daily updates on global news, our DSR Daily, and on a key story of the day through our partnership with the New Republic. That is why over a million times a month, people like you choose to spend time with our hosts and guests. Membership is what supports this, and members get special benefits, including bonus content in virtually all of our podcasts. It's a big deal, and it's a good deal. Our monthly membership price is going to go up for the first time in our history on March 1st. So now is the time you can lock in our founder's rate of just $5 a month. To do so, go to the dsrnetwork.com and click on membership. It's that easy, but don't delay. Today's rates will only be available for a few more weeks. Join us, support us. Go to the dsrnetwork.com right now. Thank you. This is Above Average Intelligence, a production of the DSR Network. Each week, hosts Mark Polymeropoulos and David Rothkoff are joined by leading experts from the intelligence community for expert analysis on the biggest security challenges around the world. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Mark Polymeropoulos, and this is DSR's Above Average Intelligence Show. It used to be called The Spy Show. We have changed the name. Um, and certainly, uh, when we have great guests on like we have today, the uh, the intelligence factor is going to go up very much. With that note, we're joined by the renowned journalist, Julia Yaffe, who is a leading authority on Russian-U.S. relations. She's a founding partner in the Washington Correspondent for Puck, a new media company. Well, actually, not so much new anymore. Um, covering power, money, and ego. She previously served as senior editor for the New Republic, was a staff writer at The Atlantic, covering politics and world affairs, and a correspondent for GQ. Uh, I will say I've, I've known uh, Julia for a couple of years. It is a delight to have you here, and I think I embarrassed you when I first met you because I told you that you had a cult following in the U.S. national security community. You didn't believe me, but I think <laughs> you do now because uh, you certainly are followed um, as someone who just has this incredible kind of rich insight into, into Russia. From the time, of course, you, you were born there, but also from coming back, going back there uh, on a Fulbright and living there. And so um, it's, a, it's a great pleasure to have you here today under some, some tough circumstances. And so um, let's just jump into that um, as you're just back from, uh, from the Munich Security Conference. Actually, you're still there right now. Mm -hmm. What a week. Yeah, I mean, um, I don't, I don't know, even know where to start. It feels like years ago. But yeah, I... I came to Munich for the Munich Security Conference, which opened with the murder of Alexei Navalny. Uh, and it's hard to believe that that was a coincidence, given that the Munich Security Conference is, um, was where Vladimir Putin told us in 2007, um, you know, how he thought of us, 
in the West, how he thought of Russia's place in the world, how what he thought of the American-led international order, um, and that he intended to do his utmost to undermine and upend it. Um, and since 2022, since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Russia has been barred from the Munich Security Conference, which, from what I understand, has really stung. They really hate being kicked out of clubs. Apparently, being kicked out of the G8 uh, pissed Putin off more than the sanctions in 2014. So the fact that this was announced right as the Munich Security Conference was opening, I'm sure it was one of the one of the intents behind um, Alexei's murder. Right, timing is everything, um, and I think and, and you know you have you know you have chronicled um, you know Vladimir Putin as a, uh, as a, as the Russian leader. Um, certainly, uh, uh, you probably can speak, uh, uh, you know, much about, about him and kind of his life, uh, you know, growing up and, and then as a Russian intelligence officer. But um, was there any doubt in your mind that this was timed specifically for Munich? I don't know if it was timed specifically for Munich, but it does seem like a remarkable coincidence. And um, from what I understand in the intelligence world, you guys don't really believe in coincidences. <laughs> right, guys, it's insane. Certainly doesn't see, him as, see himself as a former member of that world. Um, I think we all remember when he said there, there, there's no such thing as a former KGB agent. Yeah, he certainly said that. And you know, one of the things that that I think it was, uh, you know, as as we've we've watched you over the last several days um, with some of your uh, your correspondence uh, from Munich, and I think it's been it's been profound. It's been rightfully so emotional. Um, uh, I, you know, I, I saw that on your face. I saw that in, in, you know, during the TV hits, but, you know, on, on a personal level, you also tweeted out a picture of you and Alexei and Navalny from a time when you were in Moscow. And it's, you know, that was, uh, that was, uh, that was pretty incredible. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, that was when I was moving back to the U S after three years of living in Russia, I was taking a job at the new Republic in DC, uh, and I had a big going away party at my then favorite restaurant. The chef of that restaurant, uh, later moved to Odessa, married a Ukrainian woman, had a kid with her, and then, uh, was forced to flee under the bombs of, uh, February, 2022 and is now in Germany. Um, yeah. And I invited a bunch of people, including Alexei, who was, uh, at that point still kind of riding high as the emergent leader of this protest movement that had yet to kind of be broken. And um, I had written about him for The New Yorker. It was the first profile of Alexei in the West um, ever. And uh, I was I had kind of introduced him to the West. And um, yeah, we had become friendly. I mean, I have to say, like, I, you know, we weren't people have been extending condolences to me. And, you know, we weren't friends. I was a journalist who covered him. Right. We disagreed a lot. We, you know, he's called me up and yelled at me. <laughs> um, so have I. Wait, hold on a second. Yeah, okay. he's he's <laughs> refused me interviews, but you know, like he was always uh, funny and respectful and warm to me. And you know, I I think the I, I while I appreciate the sentiment behind people reaching out um, and offering condolences, the reason, you know, while I appreciate that. I think the loss isn't mine. You know, the loss is first and foremost his family's and and his country's because I have a lot of friends 
Russian friends, both still inside the country and outside of it. And, and it's like, they've just had their backs snapped, you know, like that there's no hope for a future anymore. I think Yulia, his wife provided some when she spoke on Monday, but yeah. So I, I think the reason I put that photo up wasn't just so much, wasn't to say like, oh, hey, I was friends with Navalny, poor me. It was to show that, you know, unlike he was Putin's opposite in everything. He was warm and genuine and, and hilarious. He was really fucking funny and witty in that kind of dry Russian way. He um, was approachable. He talked to the press, you know, until he developed his own media arm. Then he didn't need us and he didn't really talk to us as much. But, um, you know, he was genuine. He was real. He was, um, you know, and and that was, and, and also like we had lost that, but also we had lost that time. Like 2012 just seems like I'm actually here in Munich with a friend from Moscow that I've known forever. And we were just talking about how that world, that Russia just doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and I think killing Alexei was the kind of last nail in the coffin for that Russia where things could have gone in a totally different direction. Things felt hopeful. Things felt exciting. It felt like Russia was finally moving into the future. There was still a kind of thaw with the West and, um, you know, with the reset, it did work for a while. Um, and it's just, it's like a whole world is gone. I think that you know a lot of people don't. Uh, when you when you think about what what Russia has become now, um, certainly the Russia that I saw when I went there in, in 2017 is is much different than 2012. You've talked about this. You you said you when you reported there, um, you amazingly felt even as a as an American journalist, you felt safe, um, and that there was a, a bit more of an opening. But I think you know two questions on this. One is, and I just want to go back to. I was thinking yesterday when I was I was doing some TV hits. I was on Morning Joe and. And afterwards, I came back, and and you know my my wife and my kids are always, and you've met them both, and they're always my biggest critic. But they said, "Hey, you know, you you sounded really professional." And I and I thought about it, and I was like, you know what? Maybe that's the wrong reaction now. You know, speaking kind of dryly about this, you know, it's okay to be a little bit angry about what happened. Um, you know, this is probably someone who's going to go down to history as a historic figure. Uh, uh, will inspire people, but you know, the murder of Alexei Navalny is is I think warrants a little bit more than kind of dry professionalism sometimes. That's okay. Um, so just your thoughts on that. But then I, I do want you to kind of jump in and talk about what this means for, for Putin's hold on power. And is there anything left of any kind of democratic movement uh, in, in Russia? In a sense, you know, was, was Putin successful? Was this, was this something that will kind of set back even more any, any kind of uh, internal dissent? So I think on, on your first question, I think we in uh, the U.S., I mean, this has been a, a de- like a, a debate that's long running now, I would say for the last 10 years in U.S. media about what objectivity is and how it has to be kind of bloodless and and um, emotionless and that if there's emotion in it, it is therefore not rational because emotion is not rational. But um, I don't think that's true. And I think the emotional truth of this is part of the importance of it, the the, the feeling that people have right now, um, Russians in particular that they have is not just, uh, an important part of the story, but I would say it's even the point of why Putin killed him. This despair, this hopelessness, this feeling that things will never get better, that, 
you know, the past is the future and the future is the past and we're never going to get out of this cursed loop. I think that's the point. I, I think Putin wanted to evoke this emotion, to provoke this emotion in them, to f- make them give up, uh, to make them stop fighting him. And I think that um, that is important. That uh, it's a, like it's factually important. And the other thing I say about feeling safe as a journalist back then, and I would say even 2017 was much closer to the world we knew in 2012 in in Russia than it is to the Russia of today. Um, the reason I felt safe there as an American journalist is I had an American passport. I do not have Russian citizenship, and um, you were still protected as a foreign citizen. They didn't do things like they did to Evan uh, Gershkovich and also Kormasheva. And then today, uh, another dual citizen who was arrested in Yekaterinburg. Um, and you kind of knew the rules. They were unspoken. They were unwritten. They changed from time to time, but you you could figure them out. Um, and you could kind of operate more or less safely. Um, if you, if you understood that, for example, some stories are just not worth it. Right. Um, and there were certain, there were still things that the U S embassy or the, or your publication could do for you if you got in trouble. Um, I understood as soon as the war started or rather not, you know, it didn't just start (laughs) as soon as Russia invaded Ukraine. And as soon as they, immediately introduced these draconian um, censorship laws that it was all out the window. Like there were no more rules. They were changing all the time. Nobody was untouchable. You're seeing that more and more now, the way they went after really, really prominent celebrities who were very Kremlin friendly, very loyal, the way they, some of these people that ended up in a blacklist were just unthinkable because they were just seen as Kremlin loyalists. And it, was kind of a this happened over the new year and i think it was all a way to show that nobody's untouchable but putin there are no rules and um in a and that is the definition of terror right that they can get anyone anytime for anything and they'll make up the rule after the fact um the fact for example that this woman who was arrested on tuesday a uh, dual Russian American citizen, thirty-three years old. She was arrested for a uh, donating fifty-one dollars and eighty cents to Razom, the Ukrainian charity, and B. Did I say one and B? Two. She was also uh, arrested for protesting for Ukraine in Los Angeles. So she was arrested in Russia, not for protesting in Russia, but for protesting abroad in Los Angeles. Like that wasn't a rule before. Now it's a rule. Uh, today, uh, on Tuesday, Dmitry Peskov, uh, the Kremlin, the Putin spokesp- spokesperson said, all these people who are being arrested for putting flowers down on these memorials are being arrested according to the law. So now a apparently putting flowers down is against the law, right? There's no law like that, but there is because they just said so and they made it up after the fact. So this kind of sense of complete lawlessness that breeds a kind of fear and terror, A is the point and B is why I would never go back, but that didn't exist even in 2019, which was the last time I went there. 
And I would, I would argue that, you know, from the U.S. government perspective, again, you're, you're talking about American citizens and, and it's harder with, of course, dual, dual citizens because the Russians are only going to recognize the Russian passport, but it's not a safe place. And, 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 you know, you will, you will see, and, and, you know, from, from my standpoint in the past, it was always, uh, you know, and this had nothing to do with Russia. This had to do with places like, like Yemen, um, like, like Somalia, like Syria, where, you know, we've had American citizens, uh, who were taken, taken hostage. And there was always kind of the, the, the message from the consular section at the embassy, please don't come, you know, here. Um, that only, you know, when I left CIA in 2019, we started saying that. But before that, we did okay, not. And it's, yeah, about, about American citizens, you got to be careful. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it's clearly that's the case now. And it's, you know, so you're, you're talking about Russia, like we would talk about, you know, North Korea in the sense of Americans in any facet of anything, including the press, should not be there. Pretty remarkable. Um, yeah, I think uh, that's a, I think that comparison is is really apt. Um, the North Korean one, also the uh, Iranian comparison, right. in that they're going yeah. after dual citizens. Um, so I think a, a big question now, um, and you know, one of the things that that you know, as again a former government official, you're always wondering, okay, what can be done? So what should our reaction uh, in the West be to, to a variety of of circumstances? One, of course. Um, is, uh, is, the, is the tragic death of Alexei Navalny. Um, but also, uh, you know, we have uh, this notion of the war in Ukraine. Um, and it, it's somewhat, uh, no, or it's certainly not looking as positive, if you want to use that word, as, as it was a, a year ago. Um, you know, one of the things I think that one can argue is, is a, very, uh, a very good way to honor Alexei Navalny and his tragic death is there's a $60 billion supplemental you know, sitting on our fingertips that, frankly, two people are blocking. That's Donald Trump and Mike Johnson, the speaker. Um, there's also the, you know, the, I call it the Ann Applebaum proposal, the 300 billion in, in, uh, in reserves that's frozen in, in, in Europe. Should we freeze, Russian reserves, should we freeze that and provide it to the Ukrainians? But, you know, uh, even a report yesterday from NBC that said, uh, and this is, you know, you, you know this, Julia, this is my, this is my Alamo, that longer range attack missiles are being considered. The thing you're smiling because the attack um, but you know what? What should the policy uh, prescription be um, from the West now in, in terms of how to counter uh, uh, not only uh, Vladimir Putin, but also uh, in, internally, but also in the sense of of what's happening in Ukraine? What's your What's your sense on what we should do? Put yourself in the chair of the National Security Advisor. So I should preface this by saying that I suck at the policy side of it. <laughs> uh, I'm kind of a real journalist in that sense. Like I'm great at describing the problem. I have no idea what the solution is. How to is. fix it, right? Yeah. I mean, it, in this way, uh, I'm a real, um, you know, apple doesn't fall far from the tree. My mother is a pathologist. She'll tell you what kind of cancer you have, but she won't treat it. <laughs> um, I, you know, I think it would depend, depends what you want to achieve. Do you want to punish Putin? Do you want to force him from power? Um, I think the pre- the prerequisite to getting rid of Putin, uh, to defeating the current regime, is for Ukraine to win. Right. No way. I mean, this regime will eventually change just because death has a way of coming for everyone eventually. Uh, not just Putin, but Patrushev and all those crazy fucks around him. But, you know, Putinism can live without Putin for a long time, as we saw with Stalinism, right? Uh, Stalin died in 1953, and the Soviet Union didn't, didn't collapse for another 40 years. 
So, but again, I think, I think it's not winning in Ukraine doesn't guarantee Putin's ouster, but it's, it's uh, necessary, but not sufficient, but you definitely can't do it without it. It's, in my sense, I agree. It's you know it's certainly a path forward. And again, we always want to do something. That something is right there. Oh, the um, other in front thing of I us. would say. Yeah. The other thing I would say that we really should do that we're not doing, and in fact we're doing the opposite of because I think we're maybe listening to the Ukrainians too much, is allowing Russians to escape. And uh, you know about a million of them left in the last two years. Most of them are the best and the brightest. They are the highly educated town. They work in industries that need freedom and creativity. They don't want to fight in the war, whether because they don't want to die or because they disagree with the war. You know, some people left because of the draft. Some people left because they don't agree. Some people left because they're journalists. But these people have had a hell of a time getting visas, residency permits, uh, work permits in the West. Be- uh, you know, I even remember asking somebody on the National Security Council early on in the war, you know, are are we going to, you know, we up the quota for Ukrainian refugees, but a lot aren't coming because they want to stay in Europe closer to home because they want to go home. The Russians can't, won't be able to go home for a long time. And are we going to help them? Are we going to increase the quota for them? Are we going to help them with visas, et cetera? And this NSC official said, that's Europe's problem. And I just think it's so stupid. A friend of mine who's um, kind of from the neocon world, so I don't agree with him on a lot. But with this, he said very wisely, he said, you know, they're giving away their best people for free. Um, a lot of them are frustrated. They want to they wanna hurt Putin. They want to help us defeat Putin. And we're just turning them away. They could be our best weapons. Of course, among them, I'm sure are spies. I'm sure are you know agents of of the FSB, et cetera. But the, those guys are going to get through no matter what. Like those guys are going to um, find a way to get here. Um, you know, the, the artists and photographers and writers and activists and professors and um, IT software specialists are not. And I think we should be helping them if we actually want to a help ourselves, but also hurt Putin. After after having been in in you know in, in Europe now in Germany for for the past week, um, uh, you know what is what is your sense of uh, the European officials not necessarily worry about Ukraine, and I think you know and and uh, to to be fair, uh, I think European nations certainly have stepped up um, in providing billions in assistance, but but I'm I'm more interested in uh, what the, uh, Europe is in terms of their national security strategies, how they see. Russia and how they maybe how their view of Russia has changed as a threat. Was that a theme of the security conference this year? Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think their ass- assessment of, of Russia has changed. I think they see it as a much greater danger to themselves than we do. Obviously, they're closer. Um, half of Europe was under the Russian thumb, you know, and under Russian, brutal Russian occupation. So they know, you know, what could happen. They've been there and they want to prevent it and they don't even want to get close to that. But also what I heard at the Munich Security Forum made me embarrassed because it was like, how many times can we explain to Americans 
why vegetables are good for them, you know, why NATO is important, why it helps them first. Like the number of times I saw Jens Stoltenberg and other kind of NATO and EU officials explain, hey guys, the only time we ever invoked Article 5 of, of the NATO Charter was to help you fuckers, you know? And it was just, and like, you know, and the balls of J.D. Vance to, to show up and to, you know, having voted no on the supplemental. Um, I, there was a lot of like, kind of just they're, they're fed up with us. Uh, they're fed up with worrying about Trump coming back. They're just like sick of worrying about us and making us eat our vegetables. And honestly, I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed for us. You know, I, I, I smiled, unfortunately, when you said this, because I, I've had the same exact feeling. I, I almost think about what it would be like if I was in my old job as an as a operations officer for CIA um, serving in Europe and having to try to uh, explain kind of that um, this American. And when I, you know, sometimes I use the word political dysfunction, but it's really not. It is, it is in essence, a pro-Putin wing of the Republican Party led by our former president. Um, and I think it is, it is embarrassing. You know, one of the things that I've I was thinking about over over you know over the last couple of days is is my career and how I even as a Middle East hand for, for the most of it how I you know, how I interacted with European allies and and I and I actually haven't told this story before I was I was in Afghanistan I was the chief of a paramilitary base in eastern Afghanistan and we were under attack by Al Qaeda one day we were all along the border with Pakistan and we called in what's called close air support and and an aircraft comes online now usually it would be a you know a Navy or Marine F eighteen an Air Force B one bomber. But there's the pilot, and we had a we had a combat controller with us in our base. The, the pilot speaking French. Who is who is providing air cover for us? A French Mirage. And then and then so I started thinking about that the other day, and I and and I looked, and 86 members of the French military were killed in Afghanistan. 450 British soldiers were killed in Afghanistan. Um, and the the notion that we should have some kind of transactional relationship. I, I don't recall them sending us a bill for their men and women dying, and so. I think that when you use the word embarrassing, uh, it, it certainly is. But it's even more in, in a sense, too, is that, you know, the world will exist in the future. We are going to have to call on allies. Um, it's going to be harder. It, it certainly is. I think also what, what is frustrating is um, these people want America to be the greatest country in the world. They want us to be the most powerful country in the world. But then it kind of breaks down in their heads, like the question of how do you get to be that way is not, I, I think maybe they see it from an authoritarian point of view that the way you do it is by being kind of uh, running an international extortion racket and uh, sorry, protection racket, uh, which is basically how Trump described NATO, right? Um, or, or dominating through fear, like that, so basically like the Russia, Russian and Chinese models, but I don't, I don't, I don't think they understand what it takes. Like, it's like the, the people who don't want to cut social security, but want to stop all government spending, right. Or like cut taxes, like they want their social security, but they don't want to pay any taxes. And it, and it's like, well, you need one for the other. You know, if you want to be the most powerful country in the world, when people, you know, like that was the other thing at, at, at Munich. And I, and I see this all the time when I'm abroad is that people are asking for us. 
you know, they're asking for us to do something, even in, you know, in, in Gaza, like they're not turning to France to figure this out as much as the left is screaming at, at the Biden administration and saying he's terrible and he's genocide Joe and whatever, like they're still pressuring the U S because they believe the U S has the power to fix this or to change this. People are asking for our power. And then we're saying, we want the power. We don't want to do anything for it. You should just love us and, and, and do what we say anyway. And like, that's just not how shit works. And it's, um, I don't know. It's like they're, they're spoiled, stupid children. I think deplorable was too nice a term. And, and, you know, there, I always, I always believed in my career that, and you almost had to with the job that I did, that America was in some ways an indispensable nation. But it's also the reluctant superpower, right? It's always the reluctant superpower. Like Britain loves, wants to be a superpower. Russia wants to be like these countries that were empires and embraced being empires love taking on this France. They love taking on these roles. China, we are so weird about ourselves. Like we don't want to think of ourselves as an empire. We don't want to think of our, we just want to be a superpower without having to pay for it or do anything. Um, because we're cheap because, you know, we're very mercantile, but you know what, what I keep, um, like the number of times that I've surprised or like made someone really stop and think by saying the following just is, is very upsetting to me. But um, people will say this line to me, just kind of regurgitated bullshit of like, well, we shouldn't be the world's policemen. We can't solve everything. And I'm like, okay, fair. But okay, you don't want to be, you don't want the US to be the world's policeman. That's fine. But you know who wants to be the world's policeman, like affirmatively and actively? Russia wants to be the world's policeman. China wants to be the world's policeman. And if you like, you may not like the liberal international order. I get it, like late capitalism, all that stuff. It has its problems. But like, if you think things are going to be better under a Russian and Chinese led international order, you're fooling yourselves. Or as I would say, have at it. Um, we're going to have to no, take a because, quick no, break. I don't have at it because we have to yeah. live in that world too. And I don't want to live in the world. Uh, this is the point in the podcast where we have to say goodbye to our guests who are not yet subscribers. Uh, we'll be back in a moment with uh, with Julia. If you are a, a, a subscriber and if you want to listen to the rest of the podcast and all other shows in the DSR network, it's only $5 a month and it brings you a lot of great content, uh, great bonus content. So if you're not a subscriber, we hope you will be soon. And if you are one, stand by. Thank you for listening to Above Average Intelligence, hosted every week by Mark Polymeropoulos and David Rothkopf. Above Average Intelligence is a production of the DSR Network and was produced by Riley Fessler. 